What time is it? You know it's maritime. Welcome to our podcast where we talk about all things maritime. The maritime industry is a major driving force in the global economy, and it affects all of us where we live. Our goal with this podcast is to raise awareness about the extraordinary people and amazing organizations in this industry. Our guest on today's podcast is Alex Strogan, the Chief Commercial Officer at the Port of Vancouver. The Port of Vancouver was established in 1912, and it's strategically located as a major nexus of ocean and river shipping lanes, two interstate highways, and the continental-spanning rail network. The port handles more than 7 million tons of cargo a year, including wheat, mineral, and liquid bulks, vehicles, and a broad range of project cargo. The port also hosts more than 50 industrial tenants. I'm Colin Folon. I'm a maritime lawyer at Schwabi Williamson & Wyatt, and it's great to be talking today with Alex Strogan. Alex was appointed Chief Commercial Officer at the Port of Vancouver in 2017. With over 20 years in the maritime industry, he's responsible for planning and implementing short and long-range maritime marketing strategies, including programs to promote domestic and international trade, planning and directing the marine cargo development program, and developing and maintaining relationships to promote the utilization of the port. Now, before joining the Port of Vancouver, Alex worked with many top maritime businesses in the United States and abroad, including GE Global Operations, American Shipping and Logistics Group, ARC, APL, and Maersk Line. Alex participated in the Executive Education Program at Kings Point Federal Maritime Academy in 2003 and received his Bachelor of Science in Maritime Administration from Texas A&M University in Galveston in 1999. Wow. Well, Alex, you certainly know the maritime industry. Welcome, and thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Colin, thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to our discussion today. Well, it's our pleasure. And, you know, it seems from your resume that you've known since college, that at least since college, that you wanted to work in the maritime industry. Is, is that right? And if so, what drew you to it? No, absolutely. You know, I, I think that there is a romance to this business. I cannot think of anything more intriguing to be doing than working in the maritime business. There's something so, I think, just really interesting about, you know, the coming and going of ships at ports and seeing all these different flags on these vessels and, you know, really being on the front line of global trade. It really is an incredibly interesting business to be in and, and certainly one I know I feel really fortunate to be in as well. Was there a moment in your life, Alex, where you realized that or you learned that since your path really has been deep in the maritime industry? Yeah, there was. When I was probably about six years old, my family, we were living in the Washington, D.C. area. We had taken a, a short drive up to Baltimore, Maryland, and we were walking along the waterfront one evening. There happened to be a tugboat that was pulled up there along the waterfront, and the uh, master of the tugboat, captain of the tugboat, came out and told my, my father, my mother, and I, uh, he said, hey, look, my crew has not returned for dinner this evening. Would you like to come on board and have dinner on the tugboat? Because they're not here. And so it was an amazing opportunity, you know, six years old to come onto this tugboat and, you know, meet the captain and have dinner on board with my family. And from there, I think it was, that was it. I was hooked. What a great first impression. That's a great story. So even though you knew early on that you wanted to work in the maritime industry, were there any surprises that you found along the way? Yeah, I, I think so for sure. I mean, you know, this industry is just 
full of surprises. And I, you know, I know for me, you know, I think really starting to have an appreciation for what you touched on a little bit, which is just how incredibly important ports are in terms of being that nexus of global trade. You know, ports don't get a lot of attention or at least didn't get a lot of attention up until the pandemic. And it has always struck me how truly critical that they are when it comes to really facilitating all of the things that we really use on any given day. There's an amazing book, 90% of everything that folks may have heard of, and and 90% of everything happens to move through ports. And so whether it's the car parts or clothes or food, it's amazing how critical our day-to-day lives are on these things that we don't think very much about, and that's ports and, and ships as well. That's right. That's right. Well, Every U.S. port is different. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit about what the Port of Vancouver specifically does. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, The Port of Vancouver is an incredibly interesting port. It is probably one of the most highly diversified ports that I've ever known. So unlike a lot of ports, which tend to be, I think, more homogenous in the types of products that they carry. So, for example, you know, you think of L.A. Long Beach, you think, okay, they're a container port. You think of maybe Houston, Texas, you know, or Corpus Christi, you know, being mostly around the petrochemicals. Vancouver is unique. You know, we handle this broad spectrum of commodities, you know, whether it's steel slabs and coils uh, for building, whether it's Subarus going to dealerships out across the American Midwest, as you touched on, you know, grains going out to feed the world, and then various and sundry minerals that are really the building block of society. It is incredible to be a part of all that, but my favorite by far and away favorite cargo that we handle has got to be the wind energy. You know, Mm. you see these massive wind turbines out across all of American West and out across other parts of the country as well. And to see these massive wind blades and towers coming off these ships and transiting through the port, it's really quite a sight to behold. But it's one of those things that I think I could sit out on the waterfront and watch cargo be handled all day long and never get bored of it. (laughs) Well put, well put. Imagine folks would be interested to know what chief commercial officer does. What's your typical day like? Or if you don't have a typical day, how would you describe what you do to, to somebody who, who is not familiar with it? Yeah, sure. So ultimately, you know, my job as the chief commercial officer here at the port is to lead my team to ensure that the port is commercially viable. So that means that there's ships tied up alongside our waterfront, there's cargo moving across our docks, and there's tenants in all of our buildings and facilities that we have here at the port. So our job is to go and be engaging with these external stakeholders, our customers, on a consistent and constant basis to ensure that we understand not only their business that they're in, but they are also learning from us about some of the dynamics that are going to be impacting their business. You know, whether it's labor issues, whether it's regulatory issues, whether it's weather issues, all these different things that will ultimately impact their supply chain. The onus is upon us to make sure that they're fully educated on it and it's not a surprise. And so I know for my team, you know, we're particularly passionate and we feel really lucky that we get to, you know, really engage with all of these different customers day to day and learn about such a wide variety of business. I mean, we'll we'll be talking with a grain trader this morning 
We'll be talking with a wind energy customer like GE later in the day. And maybe we'll wrap up the afternoon talking to the vice president of Subaru about a new model car that they're looking to bring in through the port. And so for us, there's never really a, a day that's the same. And I think that's probably one of the most intriguing parts about this job is that, again, you wake up in the morning and it could be a wide spectrum of different things that are going to be going on and people that you're going to be able to talk to. That sounds like a massive undertaking and just a significant responsibility to keep all of those balls in the air or pieces moving in the right direction, whatever analogy you like. How do you keep track of that all? I mean, it sounds like you've got a team of folks with you, but in terms of the long-term planning and the client contact, how do you keep all that together? You know, one of the things about the maritime industry, I think that is, I think it's great. It is such a relationship-based business that we are in. It is such an incredibly old business. And while so many other businesses, I think, have gone to be, I think, maybe less of a human touch, if you will, I think that this business has remained very human-focused in the relationships and the trust that you build. I think when you're engaging in business around the globe, And you have to really put a lot of faith in this individual or their entity, in this case, the port, that they're going to watch over your precious cargo because ultimately that is your business. And they're trusting that you are going to manage it in such a way that it's going to either one, get to where it needs to go to please their client, or that it's going to be handled in a way that's going to show up and where it's not broken or busted or whatever the case may be. And so that human relationship is to me probably one of the most important parts and most enjoyable parts about this business. And so we use all the types of tools that you would imagine a a modern sales organization would use and keeping track of all these different relationships around the world, but nothing has ever really replaced us, quite frankly, getting on an airplane, flying halfway around the world, sitting down over a meal or in an office and really talking about, you know, the value that, you know, this port can add to people's supply chain. And it has served us incredibly well over a hundred plus years now. Mm -hmm. It it sounds like a lot of your work is involved in maintaining those longstanding relationships. Is that mostly the thrust? Do you also get involved in trying to seek out new relationships, new clients, or what's the balance? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, we, we've learned over the years that it is certainly a heck of a lot harder to regain business that you've lost. And certainly for us, we work so hard to not lose business, to make sure that the customers that we do have are ones that have an extremely long relationship here. I, For example, I think of United Grain Corporation, which anchors the eastern portion of our port. They've been here for 50 years. And there are other clients that we have that have similar stretches here at the port. I think that says a lot that we work really hard to make sure that they remain happy and pleased with, with the service that they're getting. That said, we are a young port still in the eyes of other ports. And so we have a lot of room to grow. We're very blessed uh, at the Port of Vancouver because we do have a lot of opportunity to expand, whereas a lot of ports maybe don't have that luxury. And so as a result, you know, we need to go out and really find new opportunities for us to grow and take advantage of those assets that we have been fortunate enough to be handed down from previous port generations. Interesting. I know from our discussions before today that you've lived in a lot of different places over your career. And I'm interested to know what brought you to the Pacific Northwest and ultimately to Vancouver. 
you know, this industry, one of the best parts about it is it's truly global in every sense of the word. So, you know, my career has taken me from graduating from the Texas Maritime Academy down in Texas and Galveston, all the way to the Middle East and Kuwait and Dubai, back to the East Coast. And then, uh, of course, ultimately here on the West Coast, my time with GE was coming to an end. I was ready for a change. It had been seven years and I was ready to ready to do something else. And one of my good friends had called me up and, and he had said, hey, there's this great opportunity at the Port of Vancouver. I think you should give him a call and put your hat in the ring for this opportunity. And, you know, I thought about it, quite frankly, I'd never been to the Pacific Northwest ever. <laughs> and so went out for the job interview and, and took the chance to get to know the area while I was out here and was fortunate enough to be offered the position and have just fallen in love with the PNW. I mean, it is truly the most dramatically beautiful part of the world we've ever lived in. I mean, it is just astonishing how truly majestic this part of the country is. And so we couldn't be happier to, to now call this home. Well, that's great. That's great. I heard you mentioning some of the, the places you've lived abroad. I, I'm interested to know what took you to Kuwait and Dubai and what was that experience like still being in the maritime industry, as I understand it? Yeah, absolutely. I was working for American President Lines, APL, which is one of the oldest U.S. flag ocean carriers. When I first took the opportunity to move out to Kuwait, there was, it was not that long after 9-11. The U.S. Uh, military had a lot of activities taking place in Iraq as well as in Afghanistan. And as a result, the law stipulates that all those cargoes that are moving in support of our armed forces need to travel on U.S. flag Vessels. And so they needed an American to manage that trade out there across the greater Middle East region. And so they asked me to make a trip out there, see if I would be willing to live out there. And, and I decided, you know, at that age, uh, I was 30 years old. It was, it was a great opportunity. And so relocated out to Kuwait and managed really all of the vessels that were in that area from, you know, really Iraq south to Yemen and from, I would say, probably India out towards Egypt. It was my area of uh, responsibility. It was an amazing opportunity. When you live overseas, you get an opportunity, I think, to really learn and understand a lot about the cultures and customs of that area, of that region. And you start to realize, you know, that we all have a lot to learn from different people. And so for me, that was an amazing opportunity in my career to understand how different parts of the world run this industry that I love dearly, the maritime industry, and see how, how it is that they manage it, manage it well, and take some of those lessons back to the United States. What are maybe two or three things that you saw there that you kind of took with you or thought, boy, that's different than my experience either before or since? We were working very diligently to try to run an incredibly difficult supply chain from CONUS, also here in America, all the way up into Afghanistan, probably the most fraught supply chain that I think you know most people could probably think of. And one of the things that you know we I learned you know, quite a bit about is governmental relations, working hand in hand with all of these different stakeholders along that supply chain route, making sure that all the customs officials, all the government officials were all kept abreast of everything that was going on and quite frankly, allocating the time to develop those relationships with them so that when the situation, when something went wrong, 
that we were able to overcome it because you took the time and the effort to develop that relationship with them and explain what was going on. And so it wasn't it wasn't starting from ground zero, if you will, when there was this problem that arose. And so you had that existing relationship. And that's one thing I think that I took out of that time in the, in the region that, you know, developing relationships now really pays off for you in, in the future when, quite frankly, you're going to need them when maybe things are not going maybe quite to plan. Interesting. How would you say, Alex, your experience specifically in shipping informed what you do today for the Port of Vancouver? Yeah, sure. You know, the vast majority of our revenues are generated from global shipping. I think having an appreciation for the inherent challenges that these ship owners face on any given day, I think really helps us be able to connect with them, understand with them, empathize with them, and understand really what is important to them. And really, ultimately, ships only make money when they're moving. When they're tied up alongside at a port, that is not a ship that is making money. And so we have worked so hard at the port to try to turn these vessels as quickly as we can to get them back out there carrying cargo, which is what they're designed to do. And I think that's really my appreciation and experience on the ocean side of the equation with the ship owners, I think has really helped me at the port because I think you can really appreciate the challenges that they've got in front of them and try to make their lives at least a little bit easier. That makes a lot of sense. And and being able to relate to them on that level, I'm sure is an asset of yours. Would you say, you know, so we're recording this in, in February of 2023. Would you say now that the Port of Vancouver has emerged from the pandemic and is back to normal or, or are there ways that things have changed perhaps forever? I think the pandemic is certainly ancient history for us now. You know, the starting in 2020 and really going through 21 and, and even, you know, into a portion of 2022, those were years that I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Certainly in the early days of 2020, things were tough. There was so much uncertainty of what exactly is going to happen here. But ultimately, those years turned out to be record years for the port. We had more business through the Port of Vancouver in 2020, 2021, and 2022 than we had in our 100-plus year history. And that's when I think ports started to get an enormous amount of attention because during the pandemic, we realized how critical our supply chains were. And certainly for me, that made me really proud to be a part of this industry because you started to really, really, I think, appreciate what an important thing is that we do every day. Maybe you take it for granted, maybe you don't really realize it, but boy, that pandemic, I think, woke us up and made us realize that you know what we do is a critical thing. So the port has absolutely passed through the pandemic with flying colors. We are stronger than ever, I think, coming out of it. I think we have learned to run our operations in times of uncertainty better than ever. Uh, we are really great at adapting now to curveballs, if you will, that get thrown at us. So I think we're now getting back to more historical volumes of cargo as we hear in our 2023, you know, those massive volumes that we saw during the pandemic have abated. And so I think we're settling down now and getting back to where maybe we were back in 2019. What would you say are the biggest challenges that you're facing in your work today, or or maybe putting it another way, what keeps you up at night professionally? Uh, Colin, there are so many things. Uh, You know, I tell you, let's take it from a micro level and from a macro level. I think from a macro level perspective, there are probably two or three big things I think that really keep me up at night because I believe by the end of this decade, you know, who we trade with as a port 
And what we trade with, our commodities that we handle are going to change and change significantly. What is causing that? We see incredible demographic shifts taking place across Asia. This has historically been the port's main trading partners. So you think about countries like China, Japan, Taiwan, South Korea. You know, we are seeing declining demographic scenarios in all of those countries. You know, fewer people mean less mouths to feed. It also means that labor costs start to rise in those countries. So manufacturing goods over there are going to become more expensive. Does that mean more onshoring or nearshoring here in the U.S.? I think so. The other dynamic, in addition to demographics from a macro perspective, energy is going to be a significant player in where companies are able to do business and grow. We're very, very fortunate here in the United States in that, that we have the cheapest energy in the world. I think we're going to see a resurgence or a renaissance of American manufacturing here over the coming years as a result of not only one, increasing labor costs in more traditional manufacturing areas, notably in Asia, but also our lower energy costs here in America. Geopolitically as well, things I think unfortunately are probably going to remain pretty dicey here over the coming years. We know that we have some challenges uh, with China. We certainly know we have challenges with Russia. And as a result, this is going to change who we as a country and who our allies are going to feel comfortable trading with going into the future. The final one is climate change. As we face climate change head on as a major agricultural export port, we are going to be leaned on, I think, more so than ever before, less from an economic perspective of, hey, how can I get the cheapest possible cost to move this food? We are having conversations with some of these shippers in some of these countries, and quite frankly, it's more about national security. I need to know that you are going to be there when times are tough so that I can keep this food supply chain moving into my country. And I think that is a tone of a conversation that has changed really since the pandemic. And so that those are some macro things I think that are out there. From a micro perspective here, certainly labor dynamics are always challenging for us to work through. As many of your listeners will probably know, the International Longshoremen and Warehouse Union is in the midst of a very serious negotiation with the Pacific Maritime Association, the PMA. You know, this is a very you know, significant negotiation. All West Coast ports are controlled by ILW labor. It's important that we work with our labor partners to understand what it is that they need to continue to be successful and what it is that we and our, our terminal operators need to be able to compete effectively in global trade. The other micro one, if you will, I think is you know from a regulatory environment, it can always be challenging, I think, to try to develop ports and terminals in a very highly regulated environment. Certainly, we hear from other ports and terminals around the world and even around the country that it can be difficult to get the necessary permits here in the Pacific Northwest to grow. And that's been a challenge, you know, I know for us and for some of our sister ports as well, maybe less so in some of these other geographical areas. So it's something that we're cognizant of and we're working with our legislators to try to map out ways that we can certainly operate in a very sustainable way, but also allow us to move at the speed of business and be able to compete and bring economic benefit to our community by growing the port. Wow. A lot to keep you up at night. That's Indeed. <laughs> very, yes. Absolutely. It kind of also led into my next question, which is, what parts of the world would you say are most acutely affected economically, I suppose, by the Port of Vancouver and what you do? 
Japan has been, and still today, is one of our most critical training partners. And I know when you when you look at Japan, and you know, they are very much dependent on getting their food sources from other countries, one of which, of course, is the United States, and it happens to be a lot of it coming from the port of Vancouver. So I think of Japan right off the bat. And I think what we are also seeing, though, it's fairly interesting, Colin, we're seeing a significant shift now down to Southeast Asia. I'm going to touch on the Philippines specifically. We are seeing a dietary change in the Philippines, whereas in the past you saw mostly rice consumption. That's changing now to being more wheat consumption. So as a result now, the vast majority of our wheat today coming from the port of Vancouver now goes down to the Philippines. That's a shift that's taken place in just the past few years. And so it's really enlightening to me to see these dietary changes and how then ultimately that drives us to start trading into these different areas. And so, you know, two countries that I know that we have a significant impact on and certainly have a significant impact on us is Japan and quickly growing the Philippines as well. That's fascinating. I wouldn't have thought that. Absolutely. Yeah. Those micro and macro considerations you talked about, a lot of them sound like those are things you're concerned about right now that's happening right now. If you extrapolate maybe to five or 10 years, what do you think are some of the challenges that face us in that regard? Yeah, I I think as I look out, you know, maybe uh, let's go out even a, a decade, if you will. We know that here in the American West that where we call home, water is just this critical element that we we have to have it and we need it for our of course existence but we also need it to be able to keep the columbia river at levels that provide the navigability for these deep draft vessels otherwise what happens is is if we start to see lower snowpack amounts coming out of our winter time and, and less rain than in the past and higher temperatures then what we're going to see is a, a river that maybe doesn't have the same depth that it did maybe the decade prior or a prior to that it concerns me because certainly every inch that you are not able to load that vessel down is an inch that really costs our shippers because they can't get the maximum utilization out of that vessel. And so for me, as I think about things, you know, way down line, if you will, not even that far down line, a decade, decade plus, this water resource issue, I think is one that all of the Columbia River ports are probably thinking quite a bit about and taking very seriously. That's a great point. I mean, the inability to use the maximum capacity of a ship has so many results, including decreased efficiency, increased costs, increased use of fuel, because you need more ships than you would otherwise to get the same amount of cargo through the channels. That's an excellent insight. Well, I guess shifting to the good stuff, what do you see about future opportunities? Yeah, we we are so fortunate here in the PNW. We are so well positioned at the Port of Vancouver because for us, it's all, if you're a port, you focus a lot on the modes of transportation that you are connected to. In Vancouver, you've got obviously connection on the Columbia Snake River system, which is the great American river of the West. You've got, you know, our great class one railway connections, our connection into the BNSF Great Northern Railroad route from Vancouver all the way to Chicago is the most efficient rail route in America, hands down. 
and it dead ends into Vancouver. So you're talking about you know taking goods from across the upper American Midwest, you know, right into the port with the most efficient route available. And then of course the I-5 corridor, which is certainly nothing to dismiss either. So for us, I see a, th- a few different things. I see agriculture continuing to be a critical part of our business, uh, of our of our customers that we engage with. I think as climate change again also starts to take hold our reach into those northern latitudes is going to become ever more important. And we've got that. The other dynamic in play as well is the minerals that we are going to need in order to have this low carbon future. So for example, there are two commodities that come to mind that are readily available in the American West and are demanded by global markets. And they are both minerals that are critical to our low carbon future. The first is copper. Vancouver is the last remaining copper export facility on the west coast of the united states and we are going to need a whole heck of a lot of copper in order to be able to meet this demand for batteries and and electrification across our grid and across all these evs and so many of the other things that we need to do to get out of traditional fossil fuel usage the second part is soda ash something probably most people don't even think about but the world's largest deposit of soda ash is in a place called Green River, Wyoming, which happens to be in Southwest Wyoming. This deposit of soda ash is interesting because you need for every, in the processing of lithium, you need two parts soda ash for every one part lithium. Hmm. And so for all these batteries that we know that we're going to need to have this low carbon future, we're gonna need a whole heck of a lot of soda ash as well. Hmm. And we've got a 1500 year supply of it in Wyoming. And we are, perfectly connected to take advantage of that at the Port of Vancouver. So as all these countries strive to transition to this low carbon future between copper and soda ash, we are really excited to be a part of that supply chain. Did you say 1,500 year supply? 1,500 years. Wow. It's astonishing. It, I know. It, it really it really puts it in stark terms when you say it that way. Uh, it does. For us, Colin, as a port, you know, we are tasked with trying to read the tea leaves deep into the future because the as you can appreciate, the infrastructure that we build, the docks, the bursts, the terminals, we are talking infrastructure that will last 50, 60, 70, 80 years. We need to call this stuff right. Because if we don't, that is not a good investment. And so we work tirelessly in trying to look at some of these big macro trends that are happening so that we can build the right infrastructure to supply the world with really what it needs to move forward. With a real long-term view. Indeed. (laughs) Indeed. Multiple, multiple decades. Well, you know, and speaking in terms of progress and moving forward, what do you think uh, those in the maritime industry working in ports everybody can do to better foster diversity, equity, inclusion? Because this industry is so global in nature, you know, it's always been a part of my experience in this industry to engage with all of these different nationalities, all these different faiths, all these different beliefs, all these different backgrounds, because the industry is so inherently international. That said, we have a challenge in that for whatever reason, you know, there hasn't been a lot of interest from young people to enter this business. And we see the grain of our industry happening before our eyes. And this is something that I think that we need to cultivate, I think, an interest in our industry across a broad swath of the young people that we have here in America. And they are so talented and they're so 
innovative. And this industry needs that here in the United States. And so for us at the port, one of the things I'm most passionate about is we started an internship program. Last year was our first year. So we hire two interns for the summer. We choose one female, one male from the, I think four, I think we recruit from four or five different maritime academies. And these two young people come and spend the summer with us. And we work really hard to give them a broad view of everything that our industry is. Everything from the tugboats, to the IT security, to the finance, to the terminal management, to the commercial side, so that they can get their career off on the right foot and experience you know, this industry the way I have, which is just one that you can't help but fall in love with. Mm-hmm. No, that's a great answer. And I, I can't tell you how many of my clients have expressed that as well, that there's real needs in the industry and such opportunities for people who want to get into it. I guess to that point, what's one thing that you, you wish you'd known as you were coming up in your career in the maritime industry that, that you might give advice to somebody who, who's maybe just starting out? I grew up in Texas. I came from, you know, a background that didn't have any any maritime exposure to it at all whatsoever. And you know, going to school at Texas A&M, there was not enough focus on really the critical and important role that the major waterfront unions play in not only the maritime industry here in the United States, but ultimately the global commerce of the maritime industry as well. And I wish that when I was in school that I would have had some individuals that would have, I think, maybe educated me and, and some of my uh, my fellow students on really the important role that unions play, the influence that they have, and the need to work collaboratively with them in order to achieve these common goals. And I believe, ultimately, we both want the same thing. We both want to see success at our ports. And so I think understanding union labor dynamics was one thing that I think of that I think would be really missing for me in my early education and one that I had to kind of learn as I went along. That's certainly something that I think is important to know because ultimately they are your partner and understanding what it is that they want and need and being able to work with them is critical ultimately to the success of the ship, the terminal and the port. Well put. Well, so now it's time to tell me what I got wrong. What's one question, Alex, that I should have asked you, but I didn't. (laughs) How about this? You know, if I'm a young person, how do I get into this business? Where do you even start? And I can say this, you know, we've got great state maritime academies. We've got a great federal maritime academy in Kings Point. You know, these are wonderful schools and schools that quite frankly are hungry to recruit these young and and innovative young people. I would encourage, you know, these young people because this industry can be so varied in the jobs that you can take in it, Um, whether you get into the legal side of it, the commercial side of it, the operational side of it, spend time with these people that are in the industry, ask them questions. They are historically, I have found incredibly eager to tell their stories about, you know, what they do for a living or what they have done for a living and talk to these young people about what they think might be a good fit for them once they understand what it is that they're most interested in. There isn't really much in this industry that I can think of that wouldn't at least allow at least one path for any interest from any young person that I can think of. I mean, it is so varied and one that I think holds so much opportunity as well. Awesome. Well, to that point, maybe you could share with our audience the best way to that they could learn more about the Port of Vancouver or maybe connect with you if they have additional questions. 
Absolutely. So Port has an incredibly great website. So I would just encourage them to look us up on there, explore the website, reach out to you know myself or my team. We're all on LinkedIn. We use it aggressively and we are always happy to take the opportunity, even if you're not doing business with a port, to show you around, talk about our industry. I mean, that's a lot of what a port authority does is, you know, our responsibility is to open the eyes of not only our local community, but our community from a larger perspective as well across the country and talk about our story. And so please, you know, take advantage of that. And we're always happy to have that conversation. Well, that's great, and I hope our listeners do. Well, thanks so much, Alex, for joining us today, and that's all the time we've got for this episode. So we'll see you next time when you know it's Maritime. <laughs>